Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 26th podcast in our series on American history. In the 25th podcast, we looked at the Adams administration, and in many cases, two in particular, how John Adams, coming in as our second president of the United States, was a presidential administration that many historians have argued over this over the decades that it was doomed from the start. Number one, the fact that he would be walking in the shoes once filled by George Washington. That was going to be a colossal uphill battle for, for anybody that was going to succeed George Washington. Secondly, the fact that unlike George Washington, who had a vice president that was of the same political party or affiliation, Adams wouldn't have that luxury. Adams would have Thomas Jefferson as his vice president, who is of the opposite political ideology. Again, a reminder that today that would be like Donald Trump having Hillary Clinton as his vice president or Joe Biden after the 2020 election having Donald Trump as the vice president because Trump received the second most votes after Joe Biden. So this is the reason why, again, we talk about how that, as I say, was doomed from the start. So we looked at not only that, but also of other factors beyond uh, John Adams' control in the sense of the uh, French impressment of American ships leading to the domestic problems, uh, launching a quasi-war against France, and then passing the very the infamous, very unpopular Alien and Sedition Acts. So, and that's what leads us now to our 26th podcast, which is the election of 1800. In this particular election, it's been argued that this, in some cases, was America's most important election in our entire history. Certainly, it was the most important election at this point. The reason being is that the first two presidential elections where Washington won really wasn't much of a surprise. The third election with his former vice president, John Adams, now winning the presidency again, no real surprise there. But Jefferson coming in, the real the reason why this election was the first real sign of the strength of the Union was because an opposite political ideology was going to occupy Washington. Something that, as we know, will happen multiple times through to the 21st century and will continue. But remember, they don't have the luxury of knowing what lies around the corridor historically or chronologically. So that said, when Jefferson wins, not only is it an important election because it's, a, it's an opposite political ideology, but he basically wins by one single vote. It was an unbelievably, it could not have been a closer election outside of it, of course, being a tie. Is it any surprise that within Jefferson's first term, he is going to rush to pass a constitutional amendment to make sure that nobody ever suffers the way John Adams did by having a vice president 
who will be of the opposite political party. From there on out, with the passage of the 12th Amendment in 1804, when one elects a president of the United States or chooses to vote for, they will also then have their own running mate who would then occupy the office of the vice presidency. But please note, which is so important about the election of 1800, is that not one bullet was fired, not one occurrence of violence was recorded anywhere. And how sad is it that up until January 6th of 2021, I was able to say that at no point in American political history did we ever have violence break out because we didn't like who won. Yes, one could argue that upon receipt of the election of Abraham Lincoln, the South pulled away, but the South wasn't looking for a war. They simply were just going to go off on their own. Obviously, that had military consequences. But January 6, 2021, that clearly was violence that ensued as a direct result of an election that the rioters refused to accept. As we move on then into the 26th podcast here in our series on world history, we're then going to take a look at the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, our third president of the United States, again, our first anti-federalist. To again, compare this to modern times, please know that the anti-federalists would be equivalent of today's Republicans. It's not that Jefferson disagreed with the federalists, what they thought the problems were, where the disagreement comes in is how to resolve those problems, and more importantly, in some cases, who's going to pay for those resolutions. As an anti-federalist, Jefferson wanted to see a weaker central government and more powerful state governments. There is no right or wrong way, unless you disagree with me, of course. No, obviously, then people have their their viewpoints and like to dig in their heels, whether it be a modern-day Democrat or a modern-day Republican, but it was no different back then either in the time of Thomas Jefferson and his presidency. Please know, too, that Jefferson was, at heart, a revolutionary. He thought the American Revolution was fantastic and well done, and who could blame him? But he also was one that felt that um, that the public should overthrow an existing government if it doesn't change radically enough. There should be a revolution about every 20 years. So Jefferson really was, as I say, a revolutionary to, to heart. Um, some other things about Jefferson that some people find interesting is that he was a true wine connoisseur. And before you marvel or smile gently thinking, well, good old Jefferson, good for you, uh, please know we foot the bill for that wine bill, just so you're aware. That did not come out of his funds. Jefferson, through most of his life, was largely penniless. He was land and asset rich, but he didn't have much in the sense of available cash, to the point that as a wine connoisseur, as president, he made up for lost time with trying to uh, taste the best domestic and international wines, regardless of the price tag. Adjusting for inflation, Adjusting for inflation, Thomas Jefferson still has the highest wine bill of any president of the United States. In some cases, too, he was America's first architect, not only designing the University of Virginia, but also his home, which, of course, can be still viewed today in Virginia at Monticello. 
when one walks in, if you've been there before, hopefully I'll be uh, recollecting some good memories here. If not, and you ever plan on going to Monticello, I encourage you to keep in point, uh, keep in mind a couple of these points to look for about the house there that Jefferson built that you would not see in any other home at that time. First off was the use of dumbwaiters. Jefferson loved to have not only the best wines at every meal, he liked to have different wines, a wine as an appetizer, a wine to go with the appetizers, a wine with the main meal, the sweeter liqueurs brought up as part of the dessert, right? The problem is that Jefferson didn't like to be interrupted. Jefferson was an extremely shy man. He had no problem talking to individuals. He had no problem sitting down with a table of two to three other people. But the moment that number was larger, it's like he lost his voice and his sense of decorum. He just he 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 slinked away from ever addressing a large group of people. He's the reason why he will never deliver a State of the Union address in person. He will send it by courier to have it read by the Speaker of the House to both houses of Congress because he was that shy to stand up in front of people. That will become the new norm until the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. But prior to that, Washington and Adams had delivered their State of the Union addresses in person. All the Constitution states is that an address, a statement of the condition of the country needs to be addressed once a year by the President of the United States, and it needs to be addressed to Congress. But it doesn't say how it has to be delivered, and that's the reason Jefferson took it upon himself to say, check please, I want no part of uh, standing in front of a group of people. So when he would have his dinners there at the, at the White House or even back home in Monticello, it bothered him to be interrupted with the servants bringing in the wine. He wanted the wine, but he didn't want to be interrupted either. And that's the reason why he designed what became known as a dumbwaiter, which was essentially a, a, a kind of a mini elevator that was cut into the wall that was large enough to hold a couple of bottles of wine. Jefferson would write down what wine he wanted, and then through a series of weighted mechanisms would lower that little capsule down to the wine cellar, where the servants down there would get the appropriate wine, uncork it, and then put it on the dumbwaiter, and Jefferson would then bring that back up to the room. So it's just these, these little things like that. Something else you'll notice when you go to Monticello is that the staircases are extremely narrow compared to any other home built at the time or even since. Part of the reason one could say is that, well, this is evidence of Jefferson's, shall we say, passive aggressiveness. By the time Jefferson is president of the United States, his beloved wife, Martha, had already died. And as a result, when he entertained at Monticello, it, of course, was the norm for the men to gather on the main floor for many discussions on politics or social issues or international relations, whatever was the topics of the day. It was also customary for the ladies, therefore, to retreat to the second floor of the house, by definition, that didn't bother, or decorum, that didn't bother Jefferson. What bothered Thomas Jefferson was the fact that they would go through all of, the ladies would go through all of the rooms and the closets and the dresser drawers. That's what irritated him. So as a result, the staircases are about half as wide as a traditional staircase. 
how that kept the woman from being able to traipse upstairs is they wouldn't be able to fit the massive plumes of their dress within the staircase rail in order to go up the stairs. It never ceased to amuse Jefferson to watch the ladies attempt to try to get themselves up the stairs without ever achieving any success. In terms also of Jefferson, we, we, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm an equal opportunity offender. And on all seriousness, I will discuss the pluses and the minuses of everything in, polit- in American history, as well as in my world podcast as well. So in terms of the, the negative side of Jefferson's personality, and I don't mean this in any way to be funny, he is what we'd consider to be America's first hoarder president. Jefferson would also be called technically a shopaholic. Whenever Jefferson was out, whether it be throughout the streets in the shops of Europe or even here at home within America, if he ever came across something that he liked, whether they be dinner gloves, uh, writing instruments, writing tablets, you name it, he couldn't just buy a set for himself. He had to buy all of it. He had to wipe out the inventory. To his defense, as he once said to an aide, I don't know if I'm ever going to see these again, and I don't want to run out. But the problem is, is that it also financially hurt Jefferson for his entire life, to the point that he eventually had to sell his massive book collection, clearly under would fall under the definition of a library, to the United States Capitol, which would give us the start of what became known and still is known to this day as the Library of Congress. For decades, it would take decades for the Library of Congress to acquire enough other volumes of books before they eventually would surpass the number that were purchased from Thomas Jefferson. And mind you, he didn't sell the entire library at first. So just a little bit of the fleshing out of the personality, the, the uh, parts of Jefferson's uh, life that was not commonly known. So what does he bring then to the presidency as his, as his presidency begins on March 4th, 1801? First off, as a good modern-day Republican or a good anti-federalist at the time, he is going to drastically reduce government spending. He's going to reduce that public debt and at the same time minimize or even uh, eliminate in some uh, some cases some various taxes. He was definitely a slash-of-tax type uh, president, again, consistent with the modern-day Republican. The way, again, that he would pay for that would also be reducing the amount that government spends for various government programs. So it was not only decrease the uh, tax revenue uh, generation, but it was also the decreasing of the expenses as well. To the t- to a T, he was following along with his mantra of a smaller central government. However, that would come to be tested not long into his first term. As president, as again, please remember that at this time, he doesn't know if he's going to be a two-term president, but within his first term, he is confronted with a situation that he believes, regardless of how he resolves, might forever make him not only a one-term president, but an extremely unpopular president and might possibly get him impeached. It started out by looking at, or the incident started out by looking at a then modern map of the United States. Clearly, we have 
no actual possession of territory west of the Mississippi Valley. And even our hold up to the Mississippi Valley is tentative uh, at best. In other words, we don't necessarily 100% able to plant the American flag anywhere in the eastern half of the United States. Clearly, we can't go anywhere near the coast of uh, the Gulf of Mexico because all of that is still in the hands of the Spanish and will be throughout Jefferson's entire presidency. Not only does Spain still own modern-day Florida, but if you look at a map of the United States, specifically of Florida, you see that arm that sticks out significantly west that increases the border or the shoreline of the state of Florida to the Gulf of Mexico. Believe it or not, that's significantly clipped. Up until 1819, the arm of Florida would wrap around all the way to modern day Texas. So again, not only do we not own all land east of the Mississippi River, we have nothing to speak of west of it. Jefferson was smart enough to know though, that the European powers most likely weren't going anywhere anytime soon. Great Britain was still to our north in modern day Canada, along side by side with France, who was still out to our west, and Spain to our south and to our southwest. Jefferson wanted to at least try to get a thumbprint, a toe, a reach down to the Gulf of Mexico. Upon hearing the news that Napoleon Bonaparte of France was having a tough time trying to solidify his military gains, having more and more of a battle with Great Britain and running out of money fast, Jefferson wondered if Bonaparte might not be vulnerable to be willing to actually sell the port of modern day New Orleans. That would give an opportunity for Jefferson to plant the American flag on territory that technically has access to the Gulf of Mexico and also could in the future control the trade that would take place up and down the entire Mississippi River. Geopolitically, it was a fantastic proposal. And not only was Napoleon truly vulnerable economically or financially, as Jefferson had predicted, he was even in more dire straits than Jefferson would ever and could ever have known at that time. So when the offer came back from Napoleon, or Jefferson's offer to Napoleon to sell New Orleans, the question, the answer was yes, but with strings attached, or shall I say, with ropes attached, miles and miles of ropes attached. President Jefferson, yes, you may sell, or I may sell, you may buy New Orleans from the French. But if you want it, you need to take just a little bit more land beyond that. And that's what would give us what became known as the Louisiana Purchase. Not only would, would Jefferson receive New Orleans, he would also receive a significant amount of land west of the Mississippi River. Jefferson was blown away by Napoleon's response. He could not believe the counteroffer that Napoleon was making to him. Please remember, though, 
that part of the reason why Jefferson wanted this not only was access to the New Orleans ports, but he was also afraid, afraid of a secret deal that Napoleon had made with Spain over territory in the modern-day southwest portion of the United States. This concerned Jefferson to no end, having two close potential enemies. Secondly, without having New Orleans, access to the Mississippi River through to the Gulf of Mexico could forever be a chokehold by a foreign power, significantly negatively impacting the American economy. As a result, Jefferson engaged in diplomacy with Great Britain before pitching that offer to Napoleon by forming an alliance with Great Britain so that Great Britain would not have to worry about America doing anything behind its back as it attempted to fight Napoleon, not only in the North American territory, but also, of course, in continental Europe, again, another 3,000 miles, three, uh, six weeks away. So from there, with the military fortifications that would be established by the French and British in the Mississippi Valley, that's when Jefferson flipped that offer to Napoleon. Again, he surprises Jefferson by coming back saying, you can have the entire territory for $15 million and do not attempt to negotiate. You either take it for $15 million or you don't. Jefferson had already secretly dispatched two gentlemen that would lead 48 other men in what became known, known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. If word got out to the French that Jefferson was already scoping out land west of the Mississippi River, up the Missouri River out west, that could also come back to haunt Jefferson diplomatically as well as in domestic politics. Jefferson felt compelled to act. In fact, he had to give a response. Would he take it or wouldn't he? The problem, ladies and gentlemen, is that for him, Jefferson, to pay $15 million, please know that the federal budget in 1803, the entire federal budget for that year, was $7.5 million. A great deal? Sure. When assessed, he would be repurchasing roughly 530 million acres. Broken down that from 15 million, he was paying roughly 2.8 cents per acre. But the problem was, can he do it? Can Thomas Jefferson, as president of the United States, purchase so much land that it's practically doubling the size of the existing country? So he immediately leans on his Secretary of State, none other than James Madison, and pleads with him to scour the Constitution of the United States, all four pages of that parchment, a parchment to look for the language that, that Jefferson could work his way into to justify his purchasing of the land. Generating the funds wasn't going to be that much of a problem. But politically, could he defend the expenditure? Jefferson was smart enough to know that the Federalists would beyond salivate at the opportunity to attack him for this gross, gross proposition 
to deplete the American treasury to grab land that we basically know nothing about. So Madison comes back to Jefferson more than once saying, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but there's no language that states you as president of the United States can purchase that land. The problem, too, is that Jefferson was a strict constructionist. He looked at the Constitution line by line and said and would honor and do and behave exactly the way the Constitution said the president should. But there's nothing in there. There's no language in there that says when given the opportunity, the president of the United States can acquire more territory, either with or without the approval of Congress, either one or both houses. It's just not there. Jefferson even looked at the Constitution himself. Finally, he called James Madison in one morning, had him sit down. Madison tentatively agreed to do so, but he knew what was up. And Jefferson said, I still haven't made a decision on the territory and whether to purchase it from Napoleon or not. Madison, probably gritting his teeth, understood because he knew what was coming. Uh, Madison, you could imagine Jefferson asking, take a look at the Constitution again and let's read it together. Let's look at it together to see if there's something that we're missing. Jefferson was grasping at straws. Of course, to please his boss and keep him happy, James Madison, as Secretary of State and the defender of the Constitution of the United States, began to read the Constitution word for word. Jefferson got up from his chair, put his arms behind his back and held his hands and began to pace around the Oval Office. He closed his eyes as he walked slowly. Listen, listening to Madison's every word, recalculating the sentence structure in his mind for the umpteenth time, until Jefferson stopped walking, opened his eyes, and looked towards Thomas, looked towards James Madison, to see Madison with his legs extended out from the chair he was sitting in, his right arm on Jefferson's desk. And Madison holding his hand, his head up with his right hand, his eyes closed, reciting the Constitution word for word. Jefferson blew up. The tension was mounting that he had to respond, and he had to respond quickly. And to see his Secretary of State not even reading the Constitution, but just simply reciting it, which, by the way, was accurate word for word, hello, Madison is the father of the Constitution in the sense that it is his language. He knows what he wrote. But Jefferson flew off the handle. Madison, I'm looking for the language that says I can do this. It would be good for the country, but I need to know that I can do this. And Madison also had hit his last straw, jumped out of his chair and said, Mr. President, you just said the words yourself. It would be good for the country to do this. Then, Mr. President, do it. But Jefferson shot back, Madison, nowhere in that Constitution does it say that I can. And Madison quietly moved closer to the president, looked him in the eye and said, likewise, Mr. President, there are no words in there. There is no sentence in there in the Constitution that says you can't buy land. You're looking for the language that says you can. It's not there. 
But that doesn't mean you can't, because none of us at the Constitutional Convention ever thought about the opportunity to purchase land. With that, Jefferson reluctantly took the deal. A deal that would again come out with a $15 million check to Napoleon for 2.8 cents per acre for that $530 million, 530 million acre territory. Adjusting that to 21st century dollars, Jefferson was roughly buying $1,000 to $4,000 per acre to the tune of $1.2 trillion. Jefferson took it. The deal was done. But now the fangs came out from his enemies, not only from the Federalist within the United States, but also from an ally that he fully did not expect would have a negative reaction to the purchasing of land, of the land or territory. And that was none other than Great Britain, who was extremely angry with the way it viewed Jefferson stabbing Great Britain in its back by now giving Napoleon a massive cash flow in which now Napoleon could continue to fight Great Britain. We would eventually come to pay for that dearly for our backstabbing Great Britain in the way that it viewed it. In the meantime, with that 530 million acres, what exactly was purchased? What was out there west of the Mississippi River? Well, you see, the laptops were all down and Google Earth was out, so Jefferson truly has no clue what's out there. Hence part of the reason why he launched the Lewis and Clark expedition. What is out there? What will Lewis and Clark find out? Well, this weekend I plan on traveling back in time to meet with Lewis and Clark just to find out exactly what they came across in their journey out there and how it truly would change the future of the United States together, even though the trip would be considered a colossal failure. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions that you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.